This is How to Read, Brief Conversations with Brilliant Minds. I'm Milan. And I'm Jess. Today we're talking to Kwame Antony Apia, a philosopher whose work focuses on political and moral theory. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, back to Milan. You might not think that writing style matters in philosophy, but Kwame Antony Apia argues that style is crucial for understanding almost all the great philosophers. He shows how a single strange sentence from the American philosopher Quine unsettles our familiar sense of the world. In contrast, French philosopher Montaigne's humble style underpins his open-minded thinking. Antony guides us through the rewards of reading philosophy as a kind of literature. Kwame Antony Appiah, welcome to the podcast. One thing that I wanted to, to ask is, so you're in a philosophy department? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, what do you see as the pleasures of reading philosophy? Whatever the pleasure is, it isn't that you immediately get what's being said, mm. right? It's not, ah, philosophy, contemporary philosophy anyway, much of it aims at mm. a kind of clarity. Mm-hmm. But in fact, in a typical class, uh, you can't get people, you can't re- sensibly require people to read more than about you know 20 pages a week. Because... Even though it's aiming at clarity and so on, hmm. figuring out what's being said, even if the language is superficially yeah. kind of accessible, is is very difficult. Mm. Um, and that can that slows you down if you're not familiar and you have to you have to learn the language and so on. So even though the ambition is clarity, uh, <laughs> um, it can take an awful long time to read a few pages of of even quite clear philosophy. Jacques Derrida, who is not a philosopher that I find very easy to understand, but mm. w- one of the things that I took from listening to him and, and reading him mm. is the recognition which is not was not too well developed when I was trained in, in English-speaking philosophy, mm. that, uh, that the great philosophers have a style. Mm. They, there's a way they write that's part of their greatness. It's not just the doctrines. Mm. And I think... Uh, there are obvious stylists in philosophy, like Nietzsche, mm-hmm. who's, you know, it doesn't matter what he's saying, uh, you c- it's just pleasurable to read him. He writes, he writes uh, beautiful German, which translates well into beautiful English. Willard yeah. um, Van Orman Quine, who's one of the great American philosophers of the 20th century, if you read him, it's very peculiar language. Okay. He writes in a very strange way, mm-hmm. and it's terribly powerful. Mm-hmm. And and he's sort of moving you along, often through difficult arguments about questions in logic and so on. But you couldn't mistake him for anybody else. Nobody else. Okay. Uh, what r- what is it that's strange about his um, style? If you can explain it, that, it's hard to say. And I don't. If I had a copy of a book here, I could just read you some. But but he's on the web, so we can uh-huh. we can find. <laughs> Let me just go to the beginning, page one. Okay, so this is some of Quine? This is the beginning of uh, a book called Word and Object. Okay. This familiar desk manifests its presence by resisting my pressures and by deflecting light to my eyes. Physical things generally, however remote, become known to us only through the effects which they help to induce at our sensory surfaces. Yet our common sense talk of physical things goes forward without benefit of explanations in more intimately sensory terms. Mm -hmm. And then one of the most famous sentences, entification begins at arm's length. Entification? Yes, the process of becoming an object. 
uh, being treated as an object, begins at arm's length. The points of condensation in the primordial conceptual scheme are things glimpsed, not glimpses. It's very poetic. It's very poetic, and yet he's the you know one of the most famous so-called analytic mm. philosophers, and he was a great stylist. Yeah, and it's weird to think about why is one going to be persuaded by someone who says things like entification begins at arm's length. Mm. It's a really weird thing to say, and there's a, there's other ways of saying it which are not so weird. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know that's what makes him quine. Yeah. I'm just going to test this tea, actually. Okay, good. Probably. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. I can think of one great 20th century philosopher who's not a particularly interesting pro-stylist, and that's Jack Rawls, John Rawls, who wrote uh, A Theory of Justice, Mm -hmm. who's not particularly interesting as a writer. Okay. But by and large, what makes, I think, and this is not a popular thought, but I think a lot of what makes for philosophical influence is style mm. uh, I mean I mean prose style not not lifestyle but prose style yeah uh, writing in a recognizable and somehow persuasive way mm. and I think in a way one of the things about the great masters of style in um, modern anglophone English language philosophy yeah. is that very often they are um, they're persuasive because they're actually making things look simpler than they are. Okay. Sim- Can and you sim- name some sim- names here? Well, I think Bertrand Russell is like this. Bertrand okay. Russell, who's one of the great, you know, prose writers of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and a lot of the prose he wrote, not all of it, but a lot of it was philosophy, mm-hmm. um, is very <laughs> convincing. And he's often most convincing when he's sort of really badly wrong okay. about something. Um Russell's prose is part of why he was an influential philosopher. It's not just that he had great ideas about mm. the foundations of mathematics and logic. Is the, do you, in the history of philosophy, do you have a sort of favorite stylist? Well, I think Montaigne um, uh, is okay. the great... I mean, I like Montaigne because... What is it about his style? Well, so one thing about Montaigne is that he does something that I like to do, try to do in my own writing, which mm. is he... Um, he recognized, again, one of the great fetishes of, of 20th century English-speaking philosophy is a fetish for things called arguments mm-hmm. and logic and so on. And I have nothing against arguments or logic, but <laughs> what Montaigne knew was that people understand things through stories, not through arguments. Mm. And so he gets you to understand whatever it is he's trying to get you to understand, which might be, he might be thinking about, you know, do cats have minds or something like that. Mm. Uh, but he, he tells you a story about playing with his cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and he, he tries, in other words, the, the, the way he communicates ideas is through stories. Mm-hmm. They can be tiny little stories, just about an episode, as I say, of playing with your cat. Mm. Uh, or they can be bigger stories. Um, but I think also another, I mean, there are many attractive things about Montaigne. In some ways, he lived in a very cruel time. He lived in the time of the, the massacre of St. Bartholomew and lots of um, uh, Protestants in France were murdered. And indeed, in his family, some among his brothers, some were Catholic and some were Protestant. So this was not a 
distant issue for him. Mm. But his basic tendency is to think of the response to religious difference that leads to violence as horrific. He's just horrified by cruelty and mm. and um, he's, he's more worried about cruelty than, than, for example, about truth. You know, Montaigne's very skeptical about the idea that anybody has a full grip on reality. Mm. So he's, he's an attractive personality. And so I think he, these are yeah. things worth saying. It's worth saying that cruelty is one of the worst things human beings do. Mm. And it's worth saying that we, we mostly are more convinced of what we think than we're entitled to be. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're valuing there is the sort of life and literature interpenetrating. Is like it's sort of... Um, he saw things in his own life. They made it. They made their way into his writing, yes. and then. And he's also a great reader, mm. so that he he lived much of his li- late part of his life in his library, mm. which is in a, a in a beautiful tower in a chateau, mm-hmm. the Chateau de Montaigne, which is why he was called that, Michel de Montaigne. Okay, um, and his own chateau with a library. <laughs> that's nice. Uh, and. And he had various, I wish I could remember what they were, but he had various inscriptions in classical literature carved into the beams mm-hmm. of the library. And a lot of them are from the ancient um, skeptics. I mean, people who who shared his sense that, well... You can't know it all. You can't know it all. Yeah. And you may not know almost anything. You may mm. Your picture of the world could be entirely wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and and he's very you know he's living in an age when stories are coming back from Latin America and Africa and so on and, and he's very interested in the ways in which mm. people are different and he unlike you know many people whose response to that is well they're just wrong he's interested in the possibility that they may have seen something that he hasn't seen mm. so he was kind of looking at other times looking at other places and sort mm-hmm. of trying to find those. Um, Analogies, or? analogies, and also challenges. I think the challenges mm. of he's he's not he's he's responsive. You could say to the challenges of difference, of disagreement, mm. and he lives, as I say, in a society that itself was profoundly riven by the Catholic Protestant yeah. divide in a way that led to murder and killings and horrible stuff, mm. wars. Mm. But he's also interested in in he has a famous essay called "Of Cannibals." Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I think, so he's someone I admire both because I think his temperament is, is, a, is, as it were, an attractive temperament, a temperament that I think one should try to encourage more people to have. Mm. But also he's a great writer and one of the, I mean, he invented the essay, for God's sake. I mean, the word, <laughs> the word essay was first used as his title for his volume. Okay. So when he first uses the word, an essay, in French, the word essay mm. means an attempt mm-hmm. or an assay, um, you know, uh, in, uh, testing for the chemical composition, for the composition of something. Mm. So he's the first person to use it to refer to a kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, that's what it is. They're little experiments, his mm. essays. They're attempts at something. They're not, it's not systematic. Mm. Uh, some of them are a few pages. Some, uh, the Apology of Raymond Sibond is hundreds of pages. Mm. They're all called essays. There's no explanation of what makes them essays. Yeah. Um, and so he it was sounds like that's something that you value in, in a lot of different reading experiences, these small kind of li- like narratives or elements of a life story that mm-hmm. there's something kind of modest about that. Yes, yeah. I think that's right. And I think that 
you know, the, there's this, there's another kind of ambition in philosophy, right? Which mm. is sort of a Kantian ambition. I, I published something called the first critique. That's because I'm planning to publish a second critique and a third critique and a fourth critique. This I am doing, Kant? this is Immanuel Kant, the great okay. 18th century German mm -hmm. uh, idealist in, in the technical sense. Mm -hmm. um, he, so, and he's, you know, first principles, as it were. First of all, we define, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of thoughts, and then mm -hmm. we define the relationship between thought and reality and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's an amazing um, architectural structure, his mm. work. Um, but I sort of feel, suppose you made a mistake on page one, yeah, the rest <laughs> of it would kind of all be crumbling away. Mm. If, you're, if you're Montaigne and you, you're trying different angles on the subject and you're trying from different, you might be wrong in one of them, but you might get something right further down the track because what's further down the track doesn't depend, it's not yeah. It's, not, it's not built on the foundations of the earlier stuff. Yeah. Can I pour you some more tea? Mm, thanks. Right, maneuver around these microphones. Thank you very much. That's lovely. I've actually just sent off a manuscript of a book, which is about the value of having many pictures of things, mm. not just having one picture. Yeah. And, uh, it, and that's, a, of course, a reflection of, our, um, of the fact that we don't know yeah. as much as we think we do. And so we need as many pictures as possible to capture the little bits of reality that we, that we do. There's a great verse, actually, about this by um, Sir Richard Burton, who was a 19th century traveler, not the actor, British actor of the 20th century, okay. um, who was, for, among other things, the first Christian to get into Mecca because he was able to pass for a Pashtun because he spoke Pashtu from Afghanistan. But he wrote, uh, truth is the shattered mirror strewn in myriad bits while each believes his little piece, the whole to own. Mm. And I, that's sort of my view. My view is the truth. truth is the shattered mirror. And um, only you can have more than one piece of it, fortunately. You, 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 yeah. you don't only have one piece. Uh, so I think that's, that's a nice note to end on because it sounds like what you're saying is sort of you don't look to any one reading experience for everything, but everything that you read has something to, to contribute. Yes, yes. Well, Kwame Anthony Appiah, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Kwame Anthony Appiah, a professor in the philosophy department and the law school at NYU. That's it for this week. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Kwame Anthony Appiah on the delightful flexibility of African proverbs. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Jalunin, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>